The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. I believe in America. America has made my fortune. I believe in the 4% rule. As long as I get those historical American returns. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Retire with Style. I'm Wade. And I'm Alex. And this week, we're going to continue our discussion of the safe withdrawal rate of 4% rule style research, talking about what happens when you start to change some of the assumptions of the 4% rule. But before we get into that, we probably should have a little bit of small talk to start things off. So what's new with you, Alex? Well, Wade, <laughs> a lot. Uh, what, what are we coming off? Well, start of the school season, start of school. So uh, as always, I've got three boys and uh, two of them. I have twins that are 16 and they're driving to school oh, wow. this year for the first time. Yeah, right. Oh, well, it's right. And so I was pleasantly, not pleasantly, I was surprised by the new insurance rates that uh, have come our way. And uh, that's always a little bit of a sticker shock. And and there it is. Youngest is in junior high. So we're all getting in the swing of things. Uh, wait, do you think as a general rule, I should wake up before my kids on a school day? Or is it okay to like sleep in a little bit and have them change and all that? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I wish I could stay asleep longer than the, the kids, but uh, we have a nice system here where actually high school starts the latest, which is very different when, than when I was at that age. <laughs> okay. Very good. Very <laughs> so that's the small talk. And we uh, it's been a while since we recorded the last episode of this series. We've had some listener feedback that uh, not everyone appreciates Alex's small talk. So maybe to keep the right compromise here, we should uh, make sure to get into the, the thick of the matter at this point. But uh, yes, great, yes, great yes. insightful comments there, Alex. Uh, this is thank yeah. you, Wade. <laughs> and this is part of a series. So we're in the fourth episode talking about safe withdrawal rates. In the previous episode, we really talked about what William Bengen's Safe Max is all about. This idea, the four percent rule, as a retirement spending guideline. That's really the starting point for the total return style, and is going to be a lot of interest of a lot of interest to the total return style. But of course, the uh, systematic distributions from investments actually plays a role in every retirement income style. So it is an important issue for everyone. But we, we ended the last episode talking about what the assumptions of the 4% rule were. And we teased when you start changing those assumptions, there are some factors for why 4% would be too high as a quote unquote safe withdrawal rate. There are other factors or other reasons that would explain why the 4% rule might be too low. And it's probably going to take us at least four episodes to get through all of those. We're thinking here two episodes on why the 4% rule might be too high. But we'll start with that. The bad news first, right, Alex? And then, then we'll get to the, yeah, the good news right? with the later uh, subsequent episodes about now, all of that being said, why the 4% rule might in some cases e even be too low and why a retiree... Well, I'm, I'm sure we can pad this episode even more so if you want. <laughs> Make it six episodes. <laughs> no, but uh, we'll no, go ahead no, and no. get started. And a few of the reasons about why it may be too high, we, we've already uh, introduced in previous episodes. Alex likes to jump ahead with some of the analysis. And uh, there was that big shocker in our previous episode where... Alex surprised the world with his questioning that 67 rolling historical periods is really enough to be certain about anything. But uh, that would definitely be one of the, the reasons why the 4% rule could be too high. We'll talk about that in this episode, as well as the general asset allocation issue that the 4% rule does assume you hold at least 50% stocks in retirement. And then also, whether or not, and this was something Alex kind of, wait a second, that's a crazy assumption. 
are retirees able to earn the index market returns on a consistent basis? If they underperform the markets, then naturally as well, that would be a reason why the 4% rule is too high. So we'll work through that. And wait, list. it's not that it's it's not that it's a crazy assumption. It's that crazy people are making that assumption, <laughs> or it's, uh, it's assuming people are, are more rational than uh, reality might might suggest in some cases, and and whether they stick to those assumptions themselves and and all that fun stuff. But yeah, I guess the easiest one on the list to get started with this would be it's a simple point the the four percent rule. We talked about in the previous episode, initially it was 50 to 75% stocks in retirement. As that was teased out in more detail, it was really uh, 35 to 80% stocks in retirement supported that historically 4% withdrawal rate. If you let the stock allocation get below about 35% stocks, there is no 4% rule in the historical data. If you had an all bond portfolio, you're looking at the 2.4% rule uh, from the historical data. And so that, that's important because if you, it's, I often, when I talk about this, there's kind of two separate discussions going on. If you look at target date funds, which is the default option for so many people in their tax qualified accounts, uh, their 401ks or IRAs, it's rare to see a target date fund that would have more than 50% stocks post-retirement. It, all, it may be more common, but not universal to see target date funds with more than 35% stocks post-retirement. Target date funds are all, all over the place, but they exist in a different world than this sort of safe max research. So, so, so wait, uh, why is that? Why would you think so? And, and what I'm getting at ultimately is, the, the allocation that we're discussing here, the fifty percent or you know thirty all the way to eighty, that's based on what this what a sustainable withdrawal rate can can withstand, right? Can sustain. Uh, what do you feel? Well, not what do you feel. What what are institutions doing? The creators of these target date funds, how are they coming with these allocations? Because they obviously aren't coming at it from the standpoint of what's a sustainable withdrawal strategy mm-hmm. oh, that right. a target date fund can sustain. They're they're coming at it from another angle. Mm-hmm. Your other world sort of statement. Right. They are trying to find the lowest common denominator of if the only thing you know about a person is their age, what's the most reasonable default for an asset allocation by age? Uh, they are based on economic theory, which is young people, most of their wealth is not yet in their investment portfolio. It's stored in their human capital. The idea that they have this lifetime future earnings that as they go throughout their career, they will earn income, spend a portion of that, save a portion of that. And that income for many people tends to behave more like a bond than a stock. Uh, depend Like a tenured professor is a pure bond, a uh, maybe a commission-based stockbroker, their salary might be more like a stock. But nonetheless, we often, as a default, think that people's salary would be behave more like a bond. And therefore, when you're young, to balance things out, you have a higher stock allocation. As you age and approach retirement, you're converting your future income into current income into savings. And your human capital is translating into financial capital. And then as you approach retirement, uh, your human capital starts to really decline and drop off to zero. I mean, technically, as you retire, you don't have human capital at that point unless you decide to return to work. And that's why with a target date fund, you then have a lower stock allocation as you get to the retirement date. Now, the question of what happens post-retirement is wasn't necessarily part of the consideration. And there's two types of target date funds. There's two retirement and through retirement. If it's to retirement, they usually just kick you into some sort of fixed, balanced, but lower stock allocation post-retirement fund. If it's through retirement, they might continue to decrease your stock allocation as you get 10 years past the target date, 20 years past the target date, and so forth. But again, they are generally all over the place, but lower average stock allocations than the 4% rule calls for. But but the interesting piece here is, and this goes back to the stuff that we've been doing on the RISA, is that they're assuming effectively once you mind your human capital 
and now you're relying on your investment capital to cover your retirement income needs. It's still, and obviously there's other products that are out there, but they're assuming you still want effectively this total return piece to it. You know, hence, you know, you're, you're getting this piece, but they're, they're kind of going halfway, right? They're, they're, they're doing it just the, the conservative piece. They're not thinking about sourcing retirement income differently than from a portfolio. They're, they're still just doing it within the portfolio, but they want to kind of lock in the potential volatility, hence the, the, the extra bonds, the, the extra bond mm-hmm. allocation. Yeah, reducing volatility. But even then, yeah, yeah, yeah. But even then, it seems like the, 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 there should be another step, especially for two-thirds of the folks. But, you know, that's neither here nor there since we're discussing the, the total return arc, if you will. We're on the 4% <laughs> sustainable withdrawal rate strategy thing. But it's amazing how, though, this is – even though we're on this specific channel of discussion – I, I want folks to realize that there, there's other ways. We're just on this specific channel on, on total return, but there's there's other ways to transition into retirement than just creating a more conservative and conservative and conservative investment portfolio. But this is just why these target date funds do it. That's how they transition your human capital to investment capital by locking in on the investment volatility on the bond side. Yeah. Another guideline you hear sometimes is the idea of age in bonds, where if you're 60 years old, you're 60% bonds or 40% stocks. If you're 70 years old, you're now uh, 70% bonds, 30% stocks. And if you follow that kind of guideline as well, it's it's going to violate the uh, 4% rule again, where you're supposed to invest more aggressively to get enough exposure to market upside to fund that higher level of spending then you would ultimately be able to get through a lower huh. stock allocation that doesn't give you the upside exposure. A, cu- a couple of points that I, I think Merritt, Merritt talking about. Uh, first off, that book, uh, the, wait, is, when he says, are you a stock or are you a bond kind of thing? And when you're working, your your human capital is a bond. Like There's a great book by Moshe Malevsky, Are You a Stock or a Bond? And wait, I think he uses that same example of you're a tenured professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in that book, I, don't hold me to that, but I, I think, and it's an excellent book to kind of get you to conceptually think about what's happening in this transition of capital as, as you retire. Cause I think that really is a foundational concept that, that folks should, uh, grab onto another piece that I, I think is fascinating and it's more, you know, outside looking in, we, we've got a lot of questions that come in from readers. Right. Uh, well, let me lay, lay the foundation. You said effectively anywhere between 30% equity to 80% equity 35%. seems to work. <laughs> 35% equity seems to work in all of these market environments, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Because you're taking these 67 years of rolling returns and the like. I think there's a lot of fuss, undue fuss from folks, especially the engineer types. And, and we have a whole mess of them that, that listen in that effectively do something along the lines of, well, the PE is such and such, and so the CAPE ratio is such and such, or, or whatever, right? And I'm going to re- reduce my allocation, increase my allocation, re- reduce it, increase it, the equity piece of the allocation. And and ultimately, I read this as, you know, if, if you're going to buy into the sustainable withdrawal rate, and it's pretty clear that if you're within the range of 35 to 80, it should work out. It seems like a lot of wasted energy to 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 mess around with allocations here or there based on forecasted expectations of the market. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean that that's a good point, and it's we, we talked about in the previous episode that within that range, it's the idea is the more aggressive you are, you're not creating more downside risk. You just have more upside potential. So you kind of think about the uh, the downside risk is is not there. It's invest more aggressively for upside. But yeah, there's a whole broad range of, of asset allocations where you're pretty much having the same downside risk exposure. So yeah, I could see how people might overdo it when they start trying to fine tune too much the uh, specific asset allocation that they use. Are you alone in retirement? Well, you're actually not alone at all. Whether you never found that right person, got divorced, or your spouse passed, being single in retirement is actually very common, and it will have an impact on your retirement, financially, emotionally, and personally. 
On Monday, September 19th at 1 Eastern, Retirement Researcher will be hosting an in-depth workshop on being single in retirement with Dan Vito, one of the leading experts on living in retirement. Dan will be walking you through some of the things that you should be doing now for your retirement. To learn more and sign up, head over to resoprofile.com style. Yeah, I think the risk of making a mistake, which we'll get to later on, is probably greater than the risk of getting it spot on. You know, there's a lot left to chance when you do that. And if you get it right, you think you're a genius. And that kind of sows the seeds for future failures, <laughs> if you ask me, you know, from that vantage point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's so that's just the idea of the 4% rule, I guess to summarize, assumes you do have this more aggressive stock allocation. And if you simply don't, if you are going through retirement with 20 or 30% stocks or even less, you that that's violating the assumptions of the 4% rule. You can't necessarily, even assuming you're comfortable using historical data for this conversation, there isn't a, a 4% rule with those types of asset allocations. Wait, there's one more point. Uh, and this goes back to the allocation before we, we drop off that. It's it's interrelated. It's not directly related, but I, I think it bears mentioning. And that's uh, the risk of your wealth. You're, you're right. You know, as you as you're working, you know, it's OK. You're accumulating. Let it ride. Be aggressive on the asset allocation side. But as you get near retirement and we're focused on distribution. You know, you want to cut off the volatility and the distribution so you, you get more in, in terms of fixed income. But there was another point that I've seen, and I, I think you you had a chart once on it as well, where the magnitude of your wealth is so much greater, though, as you also get older, that sure, stocks may go down 10% or whatever, but a 10% drop when you're 65 nominally is much greater than a 10% drop when you're 30. Hence, another reason to kind of lock that down. It's not just for the consistency of the income, but it's also for the overall nominal value of your portfolio. It's that much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that idea of the lifetime sequence of returns risk. And I've seen that it's called the portfolio size effect. That, And when it was first brought up as a concept by uh, Michael Drew in Australia, he was using that as a way to say, you really can't afford to be more conservative with a target date fund as you approach retirement, because that is the one opportunity in your life that you could get outsized market returns. And so then it really just becomes a debate around, it's indeed the case, uh, if the market goes up 30%, when I only have a couple thousand dollars invested, it's not really having a big impact on my life. If the market goes up 30% or alternatively goes down 30% when I'm at the, the peak levels of wealth just right around my retirement date, in absolute terms, it may have taken me 20 years before I saved the amount that I just lost in that one market drop or, or potentially gained in one good market year. So you are more sensitive to the uh, potential gains or losses of absolute wealth near that retirement date where in a traditional life cycle you do have more more assets absolutely is there anything is, is that what you were looking for there alex before we go to the next topic no i'm good, good? okay I'm good. I actually i have my notepad and it actually disappeared on me it, i'm using one of those remarkable tablets and like turned off and i was like oh, okay where, where did oh, everything go your, all your notes. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, okay. no i'm good now so the next issue, why the 4% rule could be too high is, and Alex really pointed this out in our previous episode, it's simply based on a short period of U.S. historical returns. And that might not really be sufficient to have a lot of confidence that we've seen the full range of potential market environments based on what's happened in the United States since 1926. Uh, the first study I did in this area was I had a global returns data set looking, it's now 20 different developed market countries going back to 1900 and looking at if, if Bill Bengen had been Italian, uh, would he have come up with the 4% rule? Uh, no. And would his name be Bill Bengen? Bill Bengino. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but no, no. I mean, in, in Italy, the 4% rule with this as close of asset allocation to 50-50. So 50% stocks, 
50% short-term treasury bills, which is closer to intermediate-term government bonds in terms of giving a better performance than long-term government bonds. But the 4% rule would have only worked 28% of the time in Italy. Uh, the uh, safe max in Italy was 0.8%. And well, Italy is one of the countries that lost a world war in this data set, so they do get some extreme outcomes. But it's not just that. Sometimes people do say, oh, well, yeah, if you lose a world war, you have a lower withdrawal rate. But no, it, it's really a, a broad range of experiences. The U.S. and Canada are really the only two countries where the 4% rule worked. It, it didn't work in the other 18 countries. And it can, in many cases, a coin flip. Like Australia had really good financial market returns in the 20th century. High stock returns, low inflation, everything else. But still, in that late 1960s, early 1970s stagflation period, the U.S. made it through okay with 4%. In Australia, 3.2 was their safe max. So it's not at all obvious that, I mean, things, the, the thing about the U.S. historical data is we've had market downturns, but they've tended to recover quickly and oftentimes quicker than with other countries' financial market data. And there's no promise that that's always going to be the case. It could have just as easily have been that the, a market downturn did not recover quite as quickly, even though average returns could be quite high. But uh, the broader range of experience that I calculated now with around the world, the 4% rule would have worked 68% of the time, not the kind of 100% of the time that we expect in, in the U.S. historical data. Uh, I, I, w- I would say there, there's a lot of truth to this, and you can say you know it may be too high because the data is limited, but it could be too low because the data is limited. To me, the data is limited means that it's hard to draw, you know, hard fast conclusions directionally. Who knows, right? Uh, but to to the point that you're kind of getting on now, where you know is you know Italy didn't work out, and I don't know. Imperial Japan or, or whatnot worked out or not. I, I ultimately feel you, you can make the same argument about the U.S., right? If, if you're looking at it through the 20s and 30s, I think structurally the U.S. Is, 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 is like another country relative to what it is right now, relative to what it was in the 70s and the like, the it, pre-gold standard, post-gold you know, that, that kind of stuff. So it, it is different altogether. And so, I don't know, it, it's even though you're looking at that, that you, you can break up the U.S. into certain segments and, and kind of recognize that each of these segments are inherently different than the other one as well. It's not one continuous kind of constant U.S. And I think what happens is you look at the U.S. now and you, you assume it's going to go like this going forward, but it, it'll change in the same way that it's changed previously. So it, it's hard to just draw these inferences just based on the historical data, whether it's whether the data is limited or not. I, I mean, that's just a directional bias that it could go either way which as we said earlier i mean just just to backtrack these are based on rolling return periods and so if you go from you know if you use 10 year rolling returns you know year one through 10 and the next one is year two through 11 and the next one is year three to 12 there's a significant significant overlap in which each of those cycles are pretty much going to follow each other very very closely and so there's not there's not really a lot of independence that you can infer from. Yeah, and this does become a very emotional topic and can lead to a a lot of accusations and and everything else um, in terms of... Emotional, how so? I don't know. Well, if your entire retirement depends on using the 4% rule and you're using a total return strategy, you kind of want to reassure yourself that this is going to work okay and anyone who questions that may be motivated by some sort of darker. Type. Oh, like you can lie to yourself a lot more. You can lie, like emotional like that. You could be living in some sort of dreamland. I don't know. I, I, I think what we're going to have too is we'll have a future episode. Where we'll have an actual advisor on board because we're talking about this. And I think the 4% rule, these are good starting points. These are good kind of barometers, as you said, when I was kind of cracking on this. But uh, in practical use, I've, you know, we'll talk about it when, when Brian's here, but in practical use, there's, I don't, I don't see people doing this, you know, by the letter. Right. Right. And they, and that's always the case that you can't actually use the 4% rule. If you have to pay taxes, you don't have constant inflation adjusted taxes. So you're, you're not going to have 
the constant inflation adjusted spending and, and there's so many other factors yeah I, I think all we're trying to point out here is a lot of folks will say, hey, we're looking at the data since 1927 and doing these rolling returns and, you know, and, and we're just looking at the U.S. and there's a whole world out there as well. All we're trying to say, it's not as concrete as what they make it out to because some, some you know, there's always somebody that'll say, well, I looked at the data 99% of the time it worked out. So, you know what? That's good enough for me. I think that's somewhat specious in terms of how it's being presented. Mm-hmm. And that, that's all we're, we're trying to say. And, and I do think the international data has value. And so, like I mentioned, the 68% was the success rate historically around the world for 4%. If you wanted a withdrawal rate that could have worked 90% of the time around the world, you would have been cut down to 2.8%. And, and I think that's just valuable information for retirees to consider for, on a forward-looking basis. Now, the a related issue there, although we don't necessarily have to get into it too much, is just in recent years, interest rates have been lower in the U.S. Stock market valuations have been higher. And if you have a concern that, I mean, with bonds, there's not any controversy about it. Low bond yields means lower bond returns, lower sustainable spending from bonds. The stock market, who knows? But the idea is, historically at least, higher valuations correlated with lower subsequent stock returns which would correlate with lower sustainable spending from stocks. And that might just be a consideration that, yeah, the the data where we are right now is different than what the U.S. historical data had as an experience. I I think this this points out something that you mentioned in the last one that I want to make sure everyone appreciates because it's quite important. You could have relatively low interest rates, or, or on the flip side, you could be thinking, wow, interest rates are going up. You know, what, what is that portend? You want to speak in speak about uh, pricing pricing power here and inflation and how that could kind of help or hinder as well remember how you were talking you know in the 20s sure things were down but that wasn't the lowest period in terms of four uh, percent it was actually in the 70s mm-hmm. and why that was I think that's a really really good point way mm-hmm. the stock market did really poorly in the Great Depression so if you were leaning towards those higher than 80 percent stock allocations <laughs> you would have had a lower safe max. Uh, But bonds did fine because this is an inflation-adjusted spending rule, which you kind of have to make sure to check the assumption. The basic assumption of the 4% rule is if there's deflation, you would actually lower your spending throughout retirement. And that's what happened with the Great Depression. The prices were dropping. The uh, real return on bonds was quite reasonable during the Great Depression, and so a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds wasn't what created the 4% rule. It wasn't the Great Depression. It was the the 1960s, a period of higher market valuations, uh, inflation, a a couple years, a few years there in the late 60s, and then especially 1973, 1974, big stock market downturns, uh, just inflation eating away at the purchasing power of bonds and so forth. That's what led to the 4% rule, and that's a concern in 2022 with now, even if inflation, the market's still expected to not remain high for too long into the future, but still it's raising the price level permanently for retirements. Uh, If inflation is 10% this year, 0% next year, still the price level for that retirement is 10% higher permanently for the rest of retirement, and that's creating strains and stress that uh, the diversified portfolio to provide that inflation-adjusted spending needs to provide that growth to keep ahead of the inflation experience. No, I think that's important. I, I think the, the the last piece of all of this, in, in terms of the market-related performance, is you know you take historical returns and you're there, but there's there's a place, and you see this a lot in the literature of what are expected market returns. What's the risk premium going forward? Like, what's the difference between the stock market and the risk-free rate? What's the spread between them? That's known as a risk premium going forward, and that and then they back it into a stock market return expectation as opposed to. Uh, just looking at historical returns, saying that the, the stocks have returned, whatever it has been over the last few years. Uh, Wade, you may want to, I'm curious as to your thoughts on the on the risk premium and how that, how that plays into us, because there's a lot of research, at, at least when it comes to Monte Carlo expectations, 
you know, when you're putting in your assumptions, uh, how many future outcomes, how many future, you know, what, what is the market? How do you sort of determine what a future potential expected return is? And, and are you, are you sort of skirting the fine line between forecasting when you do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be another one of these somewhat emotional topics. But <laughs> if you base it on the historical numbers, that's where you just look at what was the historical average return on stocks and bonds. The difference of them gives you a risk premium. What I tend to do as a, a baseline is consider where interest rates are. So the fact that bond yields are lower today than the historical averages is going to lower my bond return assumption. But then with it's there's so much uncertainty but around when you stocks. say that when, when you say that it's going to lower your bond return assumption that's not necessarily a forecast that's just if you look at the 10-year return <laughs> it, that's what it is that's the number yeah, today's interest that's rates not, are very good predictors yeah. of future bond returns it's yeah it's not like uh, you know wade's guessing here no, you no. know <laughs> in terms of that so that's even though we look he's looking in the future it's it's just a stated number right now. Mm -hmm. And then what I tend to do is add the historical risk premium to that. So that's the, for example, since 1926, the large cap at uh, U.S. stocks, the S&P 500, has outperformed U.S. government bonds by 6% a year on average. And so I would take that 6% number and add it to the interest rate to get an average stock return, which will be lower than the historical average stock return because it's 6% being added to a lower interest rate instead of to the higher average historical interest rate. And that's the basic way I usually approach developing assumptions around that. And it could very well be the case that future outcomes are linked to, to that situation as opposed to you know, the period that happened in 1926 through whatever, N plus 30. Okay, so to keep things moving along, the uh, the next issue, and it actually has two different elements of it, so we might only do one of them in this episode, but it's retirees might underperform the index market returns. The 4% rule assumes you earn the index market returns with your investments and you rebalance every well, year. Our listeners do. All of our listeners do. Okay. So yeah. I, I can... <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, re- it involves rebalancing to potentially an aggressive stock allocation, investing in the underlying market indices, maybe with index funds that have very low expense ratios. And that, that's the assumption of the 4% rule. So there are a couple of issues that go on with with why investors may underperform the market indices that we'd like to get into. And we'll just see how long it takes to get through all of that. But it's, of course, investments have expenses. And then it's the investor behavior issue. Do investors really rebalance annually right on cue to maintain the uh, balanced asset allocation that's being assumed for their retirement income plan. Yeah, I, I would say this is these are robotic strategies, and very rarely do you find them, you know, run implemented in a robotic fashion. Because the reality is, the day before you're going to rebalance, you're going to think, "Oh, well, let me not do it tomorrow because the market doesn't feel right to me," or something along those lines. I, I, I'm not saying everyone does that, but I, I think when it comes down to it. You're going to be fighting those demons to to go against it, and you know, I mean, wait, what does the a one percent reduction in 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 returns turns that four percent rule into roughly what three and a half percent, if you mm-hmm. will? Yeah, right around there, and that's so. If you kind of what's being done here is you take the historical market returns and just annually subtract one percent. So if if in a given year the market return was thirteen percent you would use 12% for that year. If the market return was negative 4%, you would use negative 5% for that year. And yeah, that it, it's going to reduce the safe max by you know around 11 to 12%. It's that 4% rule would become more like a 3.5% rule. And it's not, sometimes this is a confusing point. A 1% underperformance doesn't reduce the withdrawal rate by 1%. It's not that 4% becomes 3% because... is constant inflation adjusted spending, but a 1% underperformance is is a percentage of what's left. So as the portfolio depletes, 
the uh, 1% underperformance becomes a smaller dollar value. <laughs> and, and so it works out to be, it depends when does the market downturn happen, earlier on or later on, but typically somewhere around 1% underperformance leads to a half a percent reduction to the safe max or to the sustainable spending rate for any particular retirement year. Let's take a moment to let the audience know that this show is sponsored by Retirement Researcher. You can learn more about Retirement Researcher at retirementresearcher.com and subscribe to our newsletter where you'll receive weekly actionable information for your retirement planning benefit. Retirement Researcher is an online community devoted to helping you create the retirement income plan geared towards your goals. Yeah, so so think about it. And we just talked about the the administrative functioning of implementing the safe max, which you could think it's easy. And and I'm sure, uh, you know, quite a number of folks listening do that. But I would say more don't than do. And uh, this is pure... You know, a lot of it just has to do with investor perform. You know how you are as an individual investor implementing, and like I said, it, it the day before it has to be implemented. I, I think that's when you start having those hard conversations with yourself. And if you take what's happening right now, you start thinking, well, I want to see where inflation settles in before I even touch my portfolio. Hey, I want to see where, you know, Russia just announced they're not selling uh, gas to Europe, and this is going to have implications because they're going into this you know, winter is coming scenario and who knows what's going to happen in Europe. So I'm just going to wait to see how that plays out before I touch my portfolio. And six months later, nothing happened. And, and here you are, you, you haven't done anything. And uh, that's more common than not. And it's very hard to disabuse yourself from all of the stuff that's happening. And so, it, you know, it, it kind of leads to the, the next the next piece of why, why, why investors don't don't capture that return. And, you know, there's been quite a number of studies. Uh, one of Wade's colleagues, uh, Blanchett has done some work, but even, even Vanguard had, yeah, he's been like, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, a friend of the show has, uh, has written about this, you know, quite a bit. And he started a little, a little, uh, you know, branch, you know, with regards to financial planning in terms of what value is, is being added here. And uh, just having a, a sounding board to, to help you from that helps quite a bit. Uh, Wade, you want to go into the, the Vanguard study? Yeah, yeah. So Vanguard has a study called Advisors Alpha. And that's so when we talk about this 1% underperformance, you could interpret that as an investment management fee or an advisory fee. But that's not necessarily the whole story because with, with the Vanguard Alpha study, for example, they're looking at, you know, they're a huge financial firm with many people with accounts. They look at the accounts where there's an advisor helping to, to manage the account versus the do-it-yourself uh, type of an account. And, and and I'd like to add there, wait, Vanguard, I, I think it's safe to say most of their business is direct to consumers. So it, it doesn't, you can say they're not, it's not in their best interest to to show how an advisor adds value. It's not in their best interest or against their best interest. It's they're somewhat neutral, mm-hmm. I would think, with regards to where they're coming from. Right, right. They, yeah, I mean, they do have some advisory services and things, but certainly historically, yeah, <laughs> the do-it-yourself type investor is <laughs> yeah. a, a major influence. But what they ask, well, they, they're a bit, they talk about how advisors in all can add more than 3% in net returns to the, uh, to the client. Uh, now that's, we talk about the, <laughs> that can sound like marketing literature from an advisor saying, yeah, I can add up to 3% more returns. But uh, specifically for what we're talking about right now, they identify behavioral coaching that advisors or accounts with advisors just through what appears to be better rebalancing and coaching and, and not panicking and not uh, leaving the, the account or leaving the asset allocation behind after downturns and everything else, that behavioral coaching can add one and a half percent. And so then it becomes a matter of, well, if I would have underperformed the market by one and a half percent, but then I pay a one percent advisory fee, I'm, I'm still better off and now net gain of a half a percent at that point. So it, it is something to to think about in that regard. But indeed, and that's in, in isolation from the other stuff, though. There, that's in isolation from just the the actual administrative implementation, which is it does take time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not fair. It's not a lot of time, but it, it does take. It takes more, not time, but execution—the ability to execute on a timely manner. 
Right, right. So there's that that issue, but also it's just yeah. If you there, there's a number of different studies that estimate that there is one study out there that I think may exaggerate the number quite dramatically, and we'll talk about <laughs> investors <laughs> underperforming the market by seven or eight percent, depending on the year, some crazy number. But uh, you can set that sort of thing aside. Still, there are a number of other studies that are consistently estimating somewhere in the ballpark of one and a half percent, and so. Again, if you're underperforming the market by one and a half percent because you're not following this sort of assumption of the four percent rule, that would mean you're approximately your four percent becomes three point two five percent just through this sort of behavioral kind of uh, investing cycle that people often experience. And, and Alex, now, you might want to talk you, a little bit more about the what is it that happens with investors? Why aren't they necessarily following? the rebalance every year on Q to the 50 to 75% stock allocation. Yeah, no, no, it, it's a good point, Wade. Uh, no, this goes back to that sort of the rise of behavioral finance that we've alluded to a, a few episodes at the start of our of our podcast series, actually, when we're setting up the whole the whole resale. But uh, what we find here, and, and here there, there's been a lot of writing about this. I mean, Kahneman and Thaler, they're, you know, Nobel Prize winners just, just for talking about behavior finance, that intersection between psychology and, uh, and finance and how it's kind of messy in the middle, really. Uh, there's, there's a gentleman called Daniel Crosby who's out there making a, a great name for himself, sort of a, a psychologist like myself, uh, and he's you know gotten into this financial field. And there was a speech I heard once, and it was actually fantastic. And uh, he pointed out there's a few reasons, in 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 his view, which I agree with, why we're not necessarily adapted for investing. And you have to think about our history, right? We've been around; humans have been around roughly for three hundred thousand years, and from that vantage point, we've been we've been very ad- adaptive for survival. We, we're, we're great survivalists, if you will. Uh, markets have only been around for, you know, the, the modern markets have been around for, let's just say, 100 years to be kind, right? Uh, 300 years if you want to go back to tulips and the like. <laughs> and, you know, we, you know what, what, what do you think we've been adapted for, really? It's for survival. And, and there's, there's because of that, you know, we, 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 we're just not very good investors. We're great at, we're great at surviving out there, but not very good investors. And, uh, you know, take the brain for instance, and the development of our brain. If, if we had to, we make about, I think it's something like 35,000 decisions a day. I, wait, did you like how it looked like it just came up with that number off the top of my head? Wait, wait, wait I looked that up before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wait, and I looked that up before the the podcast because we knew it was a lot, and you know, and and but thirty five thousand that adds up to about twenty four per minute. You're making twenty four decisions per minute, and if you're out there in the savanna and you hear a noise in the brush, you run. You don't kind of think, could that be a mockingbird? Could that be Wade bringing me a branch? Could that be whatnot? No, you're just you're just running, and then later you can ask questions because you're adapted. You hear noise, stimulus response, stimulus response. You know, and I get the whole point of the gap between stimulus and response is your freedom and, and all that kind of stuff. But for right now, let's just keep it clean, right? And and so your body had it needs to make these these shortcuts. I mean, the brain is a miraculous thing. I, I think it's the 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 real two and twenty rule, in which brain makes up. Two percent of your body weight, but takes up twenty percent of the energy. Think about think about the the you know you talk about the grid, the California grid. Think about the brain and and its impact on on the resources that it's taking from you. And so from that vantage point, to survive alone, you've needed to take shortcuts, and those shortcuts manifest themselves with heuristics, with biases that that you start with, and those biases again, great for surviving. Not very good for investing. <clears throat> Just to take a couple, because there, there's plenty of podcasts that you you know you go through a, a litany list of these. But the affinity bias, right? And this podcast, to some extent, is that you're you're listening to us, and our numbers are actually going up every month, every 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 episode. They go up, right? Wait, thank goodness. That's right. <laughs> but no, they, regardless of my my chit chat as well as, well as <laughs> listener feedback. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. No, no. Our, our podcast numbers are going up, right? Uh, Wade could say in spite, but no, they're going up. And what's happening is over time, you folks are getting to know us. And it doesn't matter 
if you like us or not. It's, it's just the, the, the fact that you're listening to us and that we're getting that exposure, that familiarity breeds confidence. And that's something that's helpful, again, for survival. Hey, I'm going to listen to this guy. This guy's been around for 10 years. He must be living. He's obviously not dying. He's doing something right. You know, that, that kind of thing. Unfortunately, with investing, you know, I've been watching Power Lunch. Not gonna, you know, when I work for my house, I do it. Not because I, on CNBC, not because I really care what they're saying. It's just passing the time, current events, that, that kind of thing. Uh, and I'm listening to these people, and, and I catch myself over time listening to them thinking, oh, okay, you know, makes sense. But then I have to realize these guys don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> you know. But part of the reason why I'm, what I'm fighting is that familiarity. I see these guys on TV every time and after a while they, they feel good. I, I think that's something we have to be cognizant of. It's hard to fight against it, but it's something we have to be cognizant of. Survivorship bias. You remember the winners and forget the losers. Go back to CNBC, right? There's, what are there? I'm making it up, but let's say there are 8,000 mutual funds, right? A certain number are going to outperform by, by, by pure chance alone, right? And so there's 365 days in the year. I'm sure they could bring in two mutual fund managers a day that have outperformed the markets for five years and t- talk to you about their strategy. And if you're listening, you're going to think, oh, wow, this guy knows what he's doing. This Or a woman, this person knows what he's doing. The reality is you would expect there to be winners, but they don't roll in the, the 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 folks that have underperformed, right? You just remember the winners and you forget the losers, and that's a problem. It's it's no different than if I were to, I'm on the, if I'm on the third story floor, and 500 of us decide to jump off, right? Not all of us will die. Most of us probably will. I know this is morbid, but <laughs> bear with me for the example. For the ones that survive, you don't kind of look at them and think. Well, how did they jump? They're geniuses. I want to jump just like them. No, you don't do that, you know, because you want to survive. But when it comes to investing, we don't we don't make that same we we don't use that same kind of logic. So these are shortcuts that we take. Hindsight bias, you know, when you when you begin to reassess certain things, it's easy to play armchair quarterback and see how things how things failed, and then you convince yourself, oh, I see why this happened. I should have known, and then you think next time you're going to be able to recognize those items and and make those changes doesn't happen. You know, uh, I, I could go on. There, there's a bunch of these things. But the bottom line is, listen, as human beings, these are very good adaptations for us to survive, but not necessarily to thrive when it comes to investing. And to read a book about the 4% rule and think you're going to implement it cleanly just because you understand it, you're selling, you're overestimating your abilities, which which is another bias in and of itself, overconfidence. You, you really are, you know, when it comes to that. The, the other piece, so, you know, the, the other piece that we have is we're social beings. And this was a good point. I, I mean, the, the example that, that Daniel gave was you put myself and a monkey in an island and you come back a year, the monkey's probably alive and I'm not, right? Now, you put 10 monkeys and 10 humans in an island, most likely the, the humans will be alive and the monkeys are or in a cage or whatever, you know, that, that kind of thing. We're social beings and we work well within that manner. So think about herding. Think about markets and, and oh, my God, everyone's in, everyone's out. I got to get out of the market. I got to get in the market because look what everyone else is doing. There's this sort of sense that it's just maladaptive when it comes to investing to really be able to, to adjust that. Now, why – look, we have an advisory firm and, yes, it's always in our best interest to, to say that. But, Wade, when I say that phrase, how do I end it? It, it's in my best interest to say this, but to say this, but it's, it's nonetheless <laughs> still true. <laughs> it's true, right? I mean, and look, I, I, you do whatever you want, but the reality is, I, I think the benefit of an advisor from all of this, it's not that he's gonna coaching is a is a funny term. I don't like behavior coaching from the standpoint of we're gonna coach you up, and all of a sudden you're gonna fight these biases and. You're going to develop the superhuman strength to be able to conquer them? No, I don't, I don't think that's the case because advisors can't get over them. I think what happens is advisors provide a framework, a very uh, systematic framework, at least the good ones, provide a framework that take your situation into account and inject it into a framework that helps you make the right decisions and it begins to automate the process. Ultimately, that's the value of an advisor and that's the value of, of even the 4% rule. It's kind of a framework. You still have to implement it. And that's, that's, that's where I think a, a professional helps in that. It's no magic dust that they, that they 
sprinkle on you. It's just they give you a framework in which you can make good financial decisions on and they help you through that process. Mm-hmm. Wait. Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, and just uh, in the context of the 4% rule, humans are kind of adapted to run away from danger. And the 4% rule doesn't assume that you run away from danger, which in the context here is... In 2022, markets are down. Did you stay the course and rebalance to your aggressive asset allocation, or did you abandon your asset allocation? The 4% rule does not assume anyone's abandoning their asset allocations, and so that's just another consideration. If if that's not the right assumption, then the 4% rule might really be higher than it should be in that context. Uh, we are getting pretty far into the, the time on this episode here. So we should... Wait, Wade and I were discussing beforehand. Maybe we can get 20 to 30 minutes out of this one and we'll turn it into two. I, I knew we're, that that was too short. But... Touching 50 minutes, Wade. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so let's save the other reasons why the 4% rule might be too high for the next episode. And that'll be a great cliffhanger to tune in next time. <laughs> All right, everyone. Take care. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results. 